As you listen to this episode on your listening device of choice, we feel the need to provide you a warning. And it's a very important warning, so please pay attention. Beware the Noggle Beware the Noggle, for it can carry you away never to be seen again. It belongs to a class of creatures known as Trow, which if you recall either of our Drow episodes, you will have heard of before. Trow are fairy creatures, and if you happen to be in the Shetland Islands, which we are for this story, you need to keep a special eye out for them because they can be very tricksy indeed. Beware the Noggle If you're near water, especially beware. Be suspicious of any horse-shaped creatures you may meet. They may look like beautiful stout Shetland ponies, stallions all, but they will deceive you. Beware the Noggle don't approach it, don't touch it, and especially don't mount to its fine saddle. For if you do, you are already lost. Beware the Noggle. He is deceitful. He will wait near the river for someone to come along the footpath, weary and tired from a long walk on a dark night. The Noggle presents himself as a proper pony, offering an enticing ride to shorten the journey back home. But check the tail before you touch it. Is it hair, as you expect of a proper Shetland pony? If so, then go and enjoy your ride in good peace. But if the seeming pony hides its tail from you between its legs, or it seems to you like the rim of a wheel, stay away. It's the Noggle trying to trick you. If you're foolish enough to mount a Noggle, it will immediately gallop away with you, and no amount of reining with bit or bridle will stop him or turn him from his course. Across fen and bog he will gallop straight to the deep water, and deep, deep down into the waters he will plunge, rider and all, all the way to the bottom, and there to abandon you to your fate, to drown beneath the waters, never seen again. Beware the Noggle. The Noggle fears only fire. Touch a flame to water and you may see one leap away and disappear in a cloud of vapor or blue flame. When it's up to mischief, show it the fire and you may yet save yourself, but always, always beware the Noggle. Now for you and I, what makes the Noggle particularly interesting beyond the scary story is that it was used, as all the best stories are, as a warning. It was a way for parents to encourage their children to be particularly careful about some definite hazard of the world in which they found themselves living. The Noggle in particular came to be associated both in its behavior and its location with one very specific piece of modern medieval society's technology. Note that the Noggle is always found near moving water. Note also that if you mount the Noggle, it becomes something you can't control and something you can't dismount. See how it carries you down deep into the deepest part of the water and then abandons you there? Also note that the Noggle's tail looks like the rim of a wheel. It's only afraid of fire, and only by using fire can you fend it off and send it on its way. Because really, what the story of the Noggle is warning you about, the thing it wants you to be careful around, especially in the dark, is the other very dangerous thing you might find in the rivers and waterways of a medieval society, the thing that really might grab hold of you and take you under the water if you're playing around near it or on it and keep you there until you drown, never to be heard from again.
Beware the Water Wheel. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. If you wanted power in the early Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages if you prefer, you had only a few choices. We aren't talking about personal power here, but rather the sort of power you need to exert effort and do work. There were only a few choices. You either pushed, pulled, beat, threshed, dug, sawed, or mashed things up yourself, or you made an animal do it, or you harnessed one of two sources of free power, wind or water. Of those, the one that required the least amount of effort from you with the most consistent and predictable results was water power. Winds come and go, depending on time of day, prevailing weather conditions, and the lay of the land. Animals had to be fed and cleaned up after and guided through the work. And you? Well, the whole reason you were even looking for other sources of power was because you either didn't want to or were unable to do it yourself. Water power had the advantage of being easy to predict. If you could locate moving water, it was probably a pretty good candidate for doing at least some work on your own behalf. And as long as you set things up properly, it could do that work for you even if you weren't right there to watch it the whole time. Yes, sometimes the water went away or there wasn't as much of it around as you might want at a given moment, but there were ways around this. All you really had to do was figure out how to harness the water to do the work you wanted it to. Fortunately, the ancient Greeks had already worked out this problem for you by the time medieval society rolled around. Keen inventors that they were, the Greeks had come along, played with the various ways of getting work from water, and decided that the water wheel was the way to go. A water wheel, for those of you who don't know, is a large, usually wooden, though it can be made in metal, wheel. It generally has spokes that support paddles or buckets arrayed along its outer circumference, which would be semi or completely submerged in the water. Depending on the space you had to work with and the amount of work you needed done, it could be any size, from a few feet to dozens of yards across. Part of what would help determine the size of the wheel was how much water you could get it into. Fast-flowing streams and rivers were a good choice, especially if large volumes of water were rushing by. But you didn't want them too rough or fast because the turbulence generated would work against the wheel and make it difficult to use efficiently. Ideally, you wanted fast-moving, high-volume water that flowed smoothly past the place you intended to put the wheel. If you could find a spot where the water was deep, you could get more work out of the wheel, sure. But even better was finding a spot where the water changed levels, because that increased the potential energy of the whole system. And the more potential energy you could get, the better the wheel would work, because it would have more power. So you tended to look for spots where the water was deep, near the bank, and coming down a pretty decent change in elevation. And if you couldn't find that on the river or stream you wanted to build on, you could make it by building a mill race, and if needed, a mill pond. Dam up the river, stream, or creek above where you want to put your water wheel and mill so that you can control and regulate the flow of water going downstream. Let the water store itself up there and build a mill race, which is just a fancy name for a man-made channel that water runs down on its way to the mill, from the pond to your mill. Basically, it would be like a little aqueduct all your own. Run it, sometimes for several miles, to your mill, making sure to take advantage of the natural fall of the terrain so that it eventually meets your water wheel at an appropriate height and position to do the most possible work. You may need to do some digging around your water wheel to make sure there's enough flow to turn the wheel, 
and a way to get the water back out into the stream or river you took it from in the first place. But congratulations, you should have, barring some other decisions and design considerations and probably a whole lot of gearing and belts and things, a working water mill. Well, that sure sounds easy, doesn't it? And technically it is pretty easy considering. But like we said, the Greeks seem to have come up with it first, and they like nothing more than giving complicated answers to simple problems. Your first decision when building your water wheel and its associated mill, because no one just builds a water wheel without expecting it to do something for them, is to decide if your wheel is going to be horizontal or vertical. Why would you want to do either? Well, we're here to tell you. A horizontal wheel is ideal if what you want is horizontal motion without all the hassle of building lots of gearing to get it. It's not very efficient, but provided you're getting the power you want out of it, it doesn't have to be. Typically, the horizontal wheel sits under the mill itself and is turned by a jet of water that sprays across the wheel paddles, causing the whole thing to turn, which rotates a vertical shaft that passes straight up through the floor of the mill into the workroom. This is a good design if what you want to do is run a grist mill, which is something we will come back to and explain in a bit. The vertical wheel and its horizontal shaft is a little more tricky, if for no other reason than there are several different types. The first type is the stream wheel. This is the oldest, simplest, and most inefficient of the vertical wheel types. It's literally just a wheel sitting in a stream with a natural flow of the water to turn it. No pond, no race, no elevation, nothing. Only the very bottom portion of the wheel is in contact with the water, which just flows on by. Consequently, you need a very large flow of water to do the work. The efficiency of the wheel is very low because so little of the total amount of wheel is being turned by the water, meaning much of the effort is expended just in getting and keeping the wheel itself moving. As you move the contact point and flow of water up the wheel so that more of the water contacting the wheel has more of a chance to move it, you come to the next type of vertical water wheel, the undershot wheel. If you think of the wheel as a clock face, and keep in mind the wheel turns opposite the direction of water flow, in a stream wheel, the water is only in contact with the wheel between 7 and 5 o'clock. With the undershot wheel, the initial point of contact for the water is at about 8 to 8.30, with outflow still happening around 5. The higher contact point makes things a little more efficient, as slightly more power from slightly less water is transferred to the work to be done, instead of being wasted in turning the wheel. Better efficiency than the stream wheel, but still not great. The breast shot wheel, however, represents a pretty big jump in efficiency. In the breast shot, the water first contacts the wheel at about 9 o'clock and flows under the wheel to the 5 o'clock position. The paddles, now called buckets, are carefully shaped to allow the water to flow as smoothly as possible around the wheel and minimize turbulence. And the sides of the wheel are generally covered to make sure the water makes as full a trip around the wheel as it can instead of sloshing out early and not doing the maximum work. In addition, where the previous wheels made use of only kinetic energy, that is, the energy of the motion of the water, breast shot wheels were also able to take advantage of potential energy. The energy that comes from an object dropping from a height, for example. In this case, the water falling onto the wheel. Altogether, the efficiency of a breast shot wheel is on the order of 50-60%, to 60 over the previous two wheels roughly 20% efficiency. It's at this point that you can begin to see why a change in elevation was key to figuring out where to site your water wheel and mill. And then, one of those ancient Greeks, keen little thinkers that they were, had a brilliant idea. 
See, up to this point, all the wheels we've described sat down on the water, which meant they not only had to use the incoming water to turn themselves and to do the work that needed doing, but they also had to use that energy from the incoming water to push out the outgoing water, which made them even more inefficient. So this Greek, whomever he or she was, asked a very simple question. Why don't we just hang the wheels up out of the water so they can spin freely? And you know, maybe bring the water in from on top to really maximize the contact time with the wheel and maximize the potential energy as it falls the length of the wheel. Which is exactly what they did as they came up with the overshot and backshot wheels. In the overshot wheel, water makes contact with the wheel at about 12.30 and falls over the top of the wheel and off the front from about 3 to 4.30. In the backshot wheel, water comes in at about 11.30. The wheel rotates in the opposite direction to the overshot wheel and falls out the back of the wheel from roughly 9 to 8.30. Both wheels are capable of achieving between 80 and 90% efficiency. Both wheels require less flow to work successfully since they are both mostly driven by the weight of the water in them rather than the speed at which the water is moving, though both also need water to come in at a sufficient height or head to contact the wheel in the right place, which, depending on where your mill is, could mean some expensive work to make sure it does. The chief advantage of one over the other? The backshot wheel, since the rotation of the wheel is in the same direction as the flow of water under it, can handle flood situations far better than the overshot wheel as it won't back up and stop with the flow of water against it. And now that you know about all the different kinds of water wheels, perhaps you'd like to put them to use for something. The ancient Greeks and Romans certainly did. One of the first things they did with a water wheel was to move water around. See, sometimes water is inconveniently placed. It's all over there when you really need it over here. Or worse, it's down there and should really be up here. However, very few people have successfully worked out how to make water flow uphill all on its own. Except, if you have a water wheel, you can almost do the trick. All you need is a couple of willing participants or a stream with a good flow, some buckety sorts of things, and enough water wheel to span the height difference between where the water is and where you want it. After that, everything is just easy. Set up your water wheel so the bottom bit is in the water you want from down there. Attach a bucket every so often along the wheel and run a trough where you want the water to start up here. Then just get someone to turn the wheel or let it rotate in the flow and each bucket will dip a bit of water out of the down there water and when it reaches the top, pour it out into the up here trough, which you can then freely pipe around to wherever you need it. Probably the carrot patch, it's looking a bit dry. The Greeks were using water wheels for just this sort of thing, at least as early as the 200s BCE, and it appears to be how the port of Alexandria drained the dry docks during the reign of Ptolemy IV. The Romans set up several water-lifting wheels in various mines to lift water out of the deep shafts in places like Rio Tinto in Spain, where 16 such wheels were in use for just that purpose. By the way, these sorts of water wheels, the kind that lift water, are called noria, and it is through them that we get the whole kit and caboodle known as the water mill. Because while the noria was practically the most basic form of water wheel going, it contained everything needed to advance the technology and set us powering other kinds of work with water. Take the grist mill, for instance. Likely the first sort of water mill developed, a grist mill grinds grain into flour. 
It does so by means of two heavy stones, one stationary and the other connected to the shaft of the water wheel by means of gears, pulleys, and other neat bits of kit. The stationary stone, called the nether stone, sits below the rotating upper stone. Grain is placed between the two stones and the upper is lowered onto the nether. As the upper stone turns, it grinds the grain into flour, which, when it is fine enough, works its way out from between the two stones to be collected. As we said earlier, if this is done with a horizontal wheel on a vertical shaft, practically no gearing is needed to be in production in short order, making it one of the easier jobs for those types of wheels to do. Vertical wheels require more fancy engineering. Shafts and cogs and gears have to be connected to transfer motion from one plane to the next, which meant you needed to know about things like pins and gear teeth to get the most efficient work for the least amount of energy. Which was vital to the Romans in their idea of bread and circuses. As the Roman Empire grew, distribution of bread to the masses helped maintain order and social stability, so it was vital that Roman gristmills spread with the empire itself. Milling technology was everywhere the Roman Empire was by the time of its collapse. Not only did this include Great Britain and Ireland, but the Middle East as well. And thanks to the expansion and trading efforts of Islamic countries, the technology eventually found its way into China as well. For once, the East got something new from the West. And for a time, everyone had watermills, and everyone was developing them to suit their local needs and purposes. By the time of the Norman invasion and William the Conqueror, it was noted in the Doomsday Book of 1086 that there were more than 6,000 watermills in Britain, and not all of them were making flour from grain. It marked a transition in Europe, from a mostly manual, muscle-based form of labor towards mechanical labor. That is, having a machine to do the tedious, difficult, lengthy, and hard work for you. With a proper watermill, you could stop hand-grinding grain into flour, yes, but you could also let the mill make malt for beer and grind meal and oats for porridge, which meant the mill allowed you to eat and drink better and to make more of what you ate and drink, which meant you could have a thing rarely heard of before, a surplus, which then meant your economy improved as more people shifted from production to storage, distribution, and sales. The development of the camshaft allowed mills to run hammers, a cam is a way of programming the change of mechanical energy, especially rotating mechanical energy, into linear motion. The cam is mounted on a shaft so that as it turns, a series of shapes or protuberances are read by a cam follower, which can then mechanically trigger something to happen. In the case of the hammer mill, a series of blocks attached to the shaft would trip the ends of a series of hammers, causing them to jump up from their resting state and then fall back down onto whatever was under them. In this way, pulp could be made for paper making, which meant there was now more paper available for the making of things like books and writing in general. Wool could be put through a process called fulling, which used to be carried out by beating wool with the feet and hands, and if you were lucky indeed, a club, but now could be done by trip hammer as well. During fulling, the wool is cleansed of grease, dirt, twigs, and other impurities, and the woolen fibers are forced to mat together, thickening the cloth, increasing its strength, and increasing its waterproofing. So people could have more and better woolen garments, stay warmer and drier, and be sick less of the time. Even ironwork was improved. Hammer mills made working wrought iron easier and faster, and eventually led to steel mills. Your blacksmith was now able to do more in less time everything from basic ironmongery 
to the forging of weapons and tools was sped up and of higher quality. Not only that, the production of these items became more consistent and gradually led to two similar items being interchangeable. You didn't have to wait for the blacksmith to manufacture the one piece in the very specific shape that fit exactly onto only your plow. You could go to him and get any one of a half dozen or so that would fit and do the same job. So in a very real sense, the water wheel is one of those things that by its very existence helped propel people into the future. Not only did it free the medieval world up for other pursuits like art and literature and thereby help start the renaissance, it continues to improve day-to-day -day life for all of us now, not just in the distant past. Water wheels are vitally important to this very day because without them, you couldn't possibly hear us and heed our earlier warning about the noggle. Because you need electricity to hear us. And how will you get electricity without the water wheel at the heart of every turbine that provides it? Thanks for listening to another episode of GM Word of the Week. We hope you enjoyed it. We see the summer is getting well underway this week and hope you have a chance to get out in it. We're too busy in the word mines trying to chip out a particularly tricky adjective to do it ourselves. But maybe you can. If you'd like to help support the show, you can do so by following the little yellow banner at the top of the show's website at gmwordoftheweek.com. Supporters on Patreon get some nice little additional bonuses for their support. And thanks to everyone who already helps us out there. We don't even have to consider running ads with your contributions, and that's pretty cool. A little shout out to author John W. Farrell, whose book, The Clock and the Camshaft, and other medieval inventions we still can't live without, helped inform this episode. You'll be hearing more about it in future episodes. And there'll be a link in our description where you can get it too. The episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian. What are we'll do next? Casey. Music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, which you can find at sessions.blue. The disparity between a restaurant's price and food quality rises in direct proportion to the size of the pepper mill.